Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Here you'll find stories about law keepers and lawbreakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspapermen, and others written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called this britches bustin' country, and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. All right, today we'll be reading Emerson Huff, The Story of the Outlaw, Chapter 12, Wild Bill Hickok. The western plains were passed over and left unsettled until the advent of the railroads, which coincided with the arrival of the great cattle herds, which came up from the south seeking a market. This market did not wait for the completion of the railroads, but met the railroads more than halfway, and indeed followed them across the plains. The frontier sheriff now came upon the western stage, as he had never done before. The bad man also sprang into sudden popular recognition, the more so because he was now accessible to view and within reach of the tourist and tenderfoot. These were palmy days for the Wild West. Unless it be a gold camp in the mountains, there is no harder collection of human beings to be found than that which gathers in tents and shanties at a temporary railroad terminus of the frontier. Yet such were all the capitals of civilization in the earliest days, one town was like another. The history of Wichita and Newton and Fort Dodge was the history of Abilene, Ellsworth, and Hay City, and all the towns at the head of the advancing rails. The bad men and women of one moved on to the next, just as they did in the stampedes of the gold rush days. There came to each of these camps men bent upon making homes, and these men began to establish law and order and to set up government. Indeed, the regular system of American government was there as soon as was the railroad. The frontier sheriff or town marshal was there also, the man for the place, as bold and hardy as the men he was to meet and subdue, as skilled with weapons, as willing to die, and upheld, moreover, with that sense of duty and of moral courage which is granted even to the most courageous men when he feels that he has the sentiment of the majority of good people at his back. 
To describe the life of one western town marshal, himself the best and most picturesque of all of them, is to cover all this field sufficiently. There is but one man who can thus be chosen, and that is Wild Bill Hickok, better known for a generation simply as Wild Bill, and properly accorded an honorable place in American history. The real name of Wild Bill was James Butler Hickok. He was born May 1837 in LaSalle County, Illinois. This brought his youth into the days of Western exploration and conquest, and the boy read of Carson and Fremont, then popular idols, with the result that he proposed a life of adventure for himself. He was 18 years of age when he first saw the West as a fighting man under Jim Lane of free soil fame in the guerrilla days of Kansas before the Civil War. He made his mark and was elected a constable in that dangerous country before he was 20 years of age. He was then a tall, gangling youth, six foot one in height, with yellow hair and blue eyes. He later developed into as splendid a looking man as ever trod on leather, muscular and agile as he was powerful and enduring. His features were clean cut and expressive. His carriage was erect and dignified. He was not a quarrelsome man, although he was a dangerous one, and his voice was low and even. It might have been supposed that he would have been a natural master of weapons, and such was the case. The use of rifle and revolver was born in him, and perhaps no man of the frontier ever surpassed him in quick and accurate use of the heavy six-shooter. The religion of the frontier was not to miss, and rarely ever did he shoot except he knew that he would not miss. The tale of his killings in single combat is the longest authentically assigned to any man in American history. After many experiences with the pro-slavery folk from the border, Bill, or Shanghai Bill as he was then known, went stage driving for the Overland, and finally, in the year 1861, settled down as station agent for the Overland at Rock Creek Station, about 50 miles west of Topeka. He was really there as guard, for all that region was full of horse thieves and cutthroats, and robberies and killings were common enough. It was here that there occurred his greatest fight, the greatest fight of one man against odds at close range that is mentioned in any history of any part of the world. There was never a battle like it known. The borderland of Kansas was, at that time, ground debated by the anti-slavery and pro-slavery factions who still waged bitter war against one another, killing, burning, pillaging without mercy. The Civil War was then raging, and Confederates from Missouri were frequent visitors in eastern Kansas under one pretext or another, of which horse-lifting was one of the most common, it being held legitimate to prey upon the enemy as opportunity offered. Two border outlaws by the name of the McCandless Boys led a gang of hard men in enterprises of this nature, and these intended to run off the stage company's horses when they found they could not seduce Bill to join their number. He told them to come and take the horses if they could, and on the afternoon of December the 16th, 1861, ten of them, led by the McCandless brothers, rode up to his dugout to do so. Bill was alone, his stableman being away hunting. He retreated to the dark interior of his dugout and readied his weapons, a rifle, two six-shooters, and a knife. The assailants proceeded to batter in the door with a log. As it fell in, Jim McCandless who must have been a brave man to undertake so foolhardy a thing against a man already known as a killer, sprang in at the opening. 
He, of course, was killed at once. This exhausted the rifle, and Bill picked up the six shooters from the table and in three quick shots killed three more of the gang as they rushed in at the door. Four men were dead in less than that many seconds, but there were still six others left, all inside the dugout now and all firing at him at a range of three feet. It was almost a miracle that he was not killed. Bill now was too crowded to use his firearms and took to the buoy, thrusting at one man and another as best he might. It is known among knife fighters that a man will stand up under a lot of flesh cutting and bloodletting until the blade strikes a bone. Then he seems to drop it quickly if it be a deep and severe thrust. In this chance melee, the knife wounds inflicted on each other by Bill and his swarming foes did not at first drop their men, so that it must have been several minutes that all seven of them were mixed in a mass of shooting, thrusting, panting, and gasping humanity. Then Jack McCandless swung his rifle barrel and struck Bill over the head, springing upon him with his knife as well. Bill got his hand on a six-shooter and killed McCandless just as he would have struck. After that, no one knows what happened, not even Bill himself, who got his nickname then and there. I just got sort of wild, he said. I thought my heart was on fire. I went out to the pump to get a drink, and I was all cut and shot to pieces. They called him Wild Bill after that, and he earned the name. There were six dead men on the floor of the dugout. He had fairly whipped the ten of them, and the four remaining had enough and fled from that awful hole in the ground. Two of those were badly wounded. Bill followed them to the door. His own weapons were exhausted, but just then his stableman came up with a rifle in his hands. Bill caught it from him and, cut up as he was, fired and killed one of the wounded desperados as he tried to mount his horse. The other desperado later died of his wounds. Eight men were killed by the one. In fact, it's likely that the two who got to their horses and escaped were never in the dugout at all, for it was hardly large enough to hold another man. There is no record of any fighting man equal to this. It took Bill a year to recover from his wounds. The life of the open air and hard work brought many Western men through injuries, which would be fatal back in the States. The pure air of the plains had much to do with this. Bill now took service as a wagon master under General Fremont and managed to get attacked by a force of Confederates while on his way to Sedalia, the war now being in full swing. He fled and was pursued, but shooting back with his six-shooters killed four men. Although he did not enlist, he went into the army as an independent sharpshooter, just because the fighting was good, and his work at this was very deadly. In four hours at the Battle of Pea Ridge, where he lay behind a log on a hill commanding the flat where the Confederates were formed, he is said to have killed 35 men, one of them a Confederate general. It was like shooting buffalo for him. He was charged by a company of Confederates, but was rescued by his own men. Not yet enlisting, Bill went in as a spy for General Curtis and took the dangerous work of going into the Confederate general Pap Price's lines. Among the touch-and-go Missourians and Arkansans in search of information useful to the Union forces, Bill enlisted for business purposes in a company of Price's mounted rangers, got the knowledge desired, and fled, killing a Confederate sergeant in his escape. Curtis sent him back again, this time into the forces of Kirby Smith, then in Texas, but reported soon to move up into Arkansas. Bill enlisted again, and again showed his skill in the saddle, killing two men as he fled. 
count up all his known victims to this time, and the tally would be at least 62 men. And Bill was then but 25 years old. A third time, Curtis sent Bill back into the Confederate lines, this time into another part of Price's army. Here he was detected and arrested as a spy, bound hand and foot in his death watch. He killed his captor after he had torn his hands free and once more escaped. After that, he dared not go back again, for he was too well known and too difficult to disguise. He could not keep out of the fighting, however, and went as a scout and freelance with General Davis during Price's second invasion of Missouri. He was not an enlisted man and seems to have done pretty much as he liked. One day he rode out on his own hook and was stopped by three men who ordered him to halt and dismount. All three men had their hands on their revolvers, but to show the difference between average men and a specialist, Bill killed two of them and fatally shot the other before they could get into the action. His tally was now 66 men at least. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And now, back to our story. Curtis now sent Bill into Kansas to look into a report that some Indians were about to join the Confederate forces. Bill got the news and also engaged in a knife duel with the Sioux, Conquering Bear, whom he accused of trying to ambush him. It was a fair and desperate fight with knives, and although Bill finally killed his man, he himself was so badly cut up that he came near dying, his arm being ripped from shoulder to elbow, a wound which took years to mend. It is doubtful if any man ever survived such injuries as he did, for by this time he was a mass of scars from pistol and knife wounds. He had probably been in danger of his life more than a hundred times in personal difficulties. For the man with a reputation as a bad man has a reputation which needs continual defending. After the war, Bill lived from hand to mouth like most frontier dwellers. It was at Springfield, Missouri, that another duel of his long list occurred, in which he killed Dave Tutt, a fine pistol shot, and a man with social ambitions in badness. It was a fair fight in the town square by appointment. Bill killed his man and wheeled so quickly on Tutt's followers that Tutt had no time to fall before Bill's six-shooter was turned the opposite way, and he was asking Tutt's friends if they wanted any of it for themselves. They did not. This fight was forced on Bill, and his quiet attempts to avoid it and his stern way of accepting it, when inevitable, won him high estimation on the border. Indeed, he was now known all over the country, and his like has not been seen since. He was still a splendid-looking man and as cool and quiet and modest as ever he had been. Bill now went into trapping in the less settled parts of Nebraska, and for a while he lived in peace, until he fell into a saloon row over some trivial matter and invited four of his opponents outside to fight him with pistols. The four were to fire at the word, and Bill to do the same. His single pistol against their four. 
In this fight, he killed one man at first fire, but he himself was shot through the shoulder and disabled in his right arm. He killed two more with his left hand and badly wounded the other. This was a fair fight also, and the only wonder is he was not killed. But he seemed never to consider odds, and literally he knew nothing but fight. His score was now 72 men, not counting Indians. He himself never reported how many Indians he and Buffalo Bill killed as scouts in the Black Kettle campaign under Carr and Primrose. Even the killing of Black Kettle himself was sometimes attributed to Wild Bill. Bill was badly wounded in the thigh with a lance, and it took a long time for this wound to heal. To give this hurt and others better opportunity for mending, Bill now took a trip back east to his home in Illinois. While east, he found that he had a reputation, and he undertook to use it. He found no way of making a living, however, and he returned to the west, where he could better market his qualifications. At that time, Hayes City, Kansas, was one of the hardest towns on the frontier. It had more than a hundred gambling dives and saloons to its 2,000 population, and murder was an ordinary thing. Hayes needed a town marshal, and one who could shoot. Wild Bill was unanimously selected, and in six weeks, he was obliged to kill Jack Strawhan for trying to shoot him. This he did by reason of his superior quickness with the six-shooter, for Strawhan was drawing first. Another bad man named Mulvey started to run Hayes, in whose peace and dignity Bill now felt a personal ownership. Covered by Mulvey's two revolvers, Bill found room for the lightning flash of time, which is all that is needed by the real revolver genius, and killed Mulvey on the spot. His tally was now 75 men. He made it 78 in a fight with a bunch of private soldiers who called him a long hair. A term very accurate, by the way, for Bill was proud of his long blonde hair, as was General Custer and many another man of the West at that time. In this fight, Bill was struck by seven pistol balls and barely escaped alive by fleeing to a ranch on the prairie nearby. He lay there three weeks while General Phil Sheridan had details out with orders to get him dead or alive. He later escaped in a boxcar to another town, and his days as Marshal of Hayes were over. Bill now tried his hand at Wild West theatricals, seeing that already many Easterners were daffy, as he called it, about the West. But he failed at this and went back once more to the plains where he belonged. He was chosen Marshal of Abilene, then the Cal Camp par excellence in the middle of the plains, and as tough a community as Hayes had been. The wild men from the lower plains, fighting men, mad from whiskey, swarmed in the streets and dives, mingling with desperados and toughs from all parts of the frontier. Those who have never lived in such a community will never be able, by any description, to understand its phenomena. It seems almost unbelievable that sober, steady-going America ever knew such days. But there they were, and not so long ago, for this was only 1870. Two days after Bill was elected Marshal of Abilene, he killed a desperado who was whooping up the town in customary fashion. That same night, he was on the street in a dim light when all at once he saw a man whisk around a corner and saw something shine, as he thought with the gleam of a weapon. As showing how quick were the eye and hand of the typical gunman of the day, it may be stated that Bill killed this man in a flash, only to find later it was a friend and one of his own deputies. The man was only pulling a handkerchief from his pocket. Bill knew that he was watched every moment by men who wanted to kill him. 
He had his life in his hands all the time. For instance, next he had to kill the friend of the desperado whom he had shot. By this time, Abilene respected its new marshal. Indeed, was rather proud of him. The reign of the bad men of the plains was at its height, and the professional man-killer, the specialist with firearms, was a figure here and there over wide regions. Among all these, none compared with this unique specimen. He was generous, too, as he was deadly, for even yet he was supporting the McCandless widow, and he always furnished funerals for his corpses. He had one more to furnish soon. Enemies down the range among the cowmen had made a purse of $5,000 and hired eight men to kill the town marshal and bring his heart back south. Bill heard of it and literally made all of them jump off the railroad train where he met them. One was killed in the jump. His list of homicides was now 81. He had never yet been arrested for murder and his killing was in fair open fight, his life usually against large odds. He was a strange favorite of fortune who seemed certainly to shield him round about. He appeared now in Cheyenne, now in the Black Hills, wandering thus from one point to another after the fashion of the frontier, where a man did many things in many places. He had a little brush with a band of Indians and killed four of them with four shots from his six-shooter, bringing his list in red and white to eighty-five men. He got away alive from the Black Hills with difficulty, but in 1876 he was back again at Deadwood, married now, and one would have thought ready to settle down. But a life of turbulence ends in turbulence. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Deadwood was as bad a place as any that could be found in the mining regions, and Bill was not an officer here. As Marshal of Hayes and Abilene and United States Marshal later at Hayes City, he had been a national character. He was at Deadwood for the time only plain, wild Bill. Handsome, quiet, but ready for anything. Ready for anything but treachery. He himself had always fought fair and in the open. His men were shot in front. Not such was to be his fate. On the day of August the 2nd, 1876, while he was sitting at a game of cards in a saloon, a hard citizen by the name of Jack McCall slipped up behind him placed a pistol at the back of his head and shot him dead before he knew he had an enemy near. The ball passed through Bill's head and out at the cheek, lodging in the arm of a man across the table. Bill had won a little money from McCall earlier in the day and won it fairly, but the latter had a grudge and was no doubt one of those disgruntled souls who had it in for all the rest of the world. He got away with the killing at the time, for a miner's court let him go. A few days later, he began to boast about his act, seeing what fame was his for ending so famous a life. But at Yankton, they arrested him, tried him before a real court, convicted him, and hanged him promptly. While Bill's body was buried at Deadwood, and his grave, surrounded by a neat railing and marked by a monument, long remained one of those features of Deadwood. The monument and fence were disfigured by vandals, who sought some memento of the greatest bad man ever in all likelihood seen upon the earth. His tally of 85 men seems large, but in fair probability, it is not large enough. His main encounters are known historically. He killed a great many Indians at different times, but of these, no accurate estimate can be claimed. Nor is his list of victims as a sharpshooter in the army legitimately to be added to his record. Cutting out all doubtful instances, however, there remains no doubt that he killed between 20 and 30 men in personal combat in the open, and that never once 
was he tried in any court on a charge even of manslaughter. This record is not approached by that of any other known bad man. Many of them are credited with 20 men, a dozen men, and so forth, but when the records are sifted, the list dwindles. It's doubted whether any other bad man in America ever actually killed 20 men in fair personal combat. Bill was not killed in a fair fight, nor could McCall have hurt him had Bill suspected his intent. Hickok was about 39 years old when killed, and he averaged a little over two men a year for each year of his entire life. He was well known among army officers and esteemed as a scout and a man and never regarded as a tough in any sense. He was a man of singular personal beauty. Of him, General Custer, soon thereafter to fall a victim himself upon the plains, said, He was a plainsman in every sense of the word, yet unlike any other of his class. Whether on foot or on horseback, he was one of the most perfect types of physical manhood I ever saw. His manner was free from all bluster and bravado. He never spoke of himself unless requested to do so. His influence among the frontiersmen was unbounded. His word was law. Wild Bill was anything but a quarrelsome man. Yet none but himself could enumerate the many conflicts in which he had been engaged. These are the words of one fighting man about another, and both men are entitled to good rank in the annals of the West. The praise of an army general for a man of no rank or wealth leaves us feeling that, after all, it was a possible thing for a bad man to be a good man and worthy of respect and admiration. And with that, we come to the end of Chapter 12 of Emerson Huff's Story of the Outlaw, Wild Bill Hickok. What a character and what a time. Join us again next week and we'll have another story for you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.